Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Mark Lederbach, and uh, I need to start off with a, just a simple question. Uh, how many of you all understand the term awkward turtle? If you could show your hands on that. Okay, what's interesting is that the majority of people that raise their hands are under 20 on that. So let me explain this to the rest of you. How many of you would know? Yeah, thank you. Let's do that again. All right, show this. The symbol here is like this. You ever seen this symbol? All right. Let me explain that to you. If you would imagine a turtle on its back, that would be awkward for the turtle, right? The turtle can't do anything if he's just lying on his back. So that's kind of where the mental picture comes from. What the term means is actually if you do something in a public environment that is... uh, that is just kind of out of place, kind of awkward, then you would use this hand signal if you were not the one doing that thing to illustrate to everybody else that something that just happened was awkward. Okay, And what I just discovered recently, the symbol is like this, an awkward turtle, and depending on the level of awkwardness is how fast you move your thumbs. Okay? So here's an example of this. A boy... um, is in a group of friends at school, and there's, let's say there's five of them hanging around, and a guy's hanging around, and there's a girl in the group that he really likes, and so in the middle of everybody, he says, you know, I really love you. Would you go out with me? And her response is, nah. That would be an awkward turtle moment, right? So that would be, so, well, we've already experienced one this morning um, when Daniel Cresswell gets up to introduce me, and he, and he says, I went to Dr. Lederbach's class, and it was horrible. I thought, that was really interesting. I mean, I was sitting there going like this. This is kind of an awkward moment here. <laughs> I'm hoping, Daniel, you didn't mean it the way it sounded, but I just thought we'd take advantage of you while we're up front. <clears throat> now, I had a, I had a uh, sometimes awkward turtle moments happen uh, in public environments when somebody is being corrected or rebuked. Okay, so let me give you an example of this. It happened to me actually my first day, uh, actually it might have been my second day, but it was when we had, my wife and I had just moved to Denver Seminary where I went to school about 20, 19 years ago. Um, and when we moved out to Denver, the place where we went to school, the, the uh, apartment complex was like a three-story motel, if you can imagine that. So they, uh, there was balconies in front of it, three stories high, and it was in a horseshoe shape, okay? So there was a courtyard in between. The school buildings was on the open end, and then the, the apartment complex was shaped like that. So three stories tall, balconies, so people... My wife and I moved in. We lived on the second floor, and we were walking down from the second floor into the courtyard area where there was, you know, big grassy space open, and all of a sudden, some clothes come flying over the balcony from the top floor, and, uh, and then some more come over, and then a suitcase comes over, and then some furniture come over, and uh, we're sitting there. All of a sudden, we, we hear this, this eruption from one of the apartments where these, this crazy argument's going on, and the way the wife is publicly rebuking the husband is by taking his clothes and throwing them out over the balcony out into the courtyard of the seminary. That's our second day of seminary. Imagine walking in there, yeah, this is a great place to grow in your marriage and your walk with the Lord. If I had known at the time, we probably all would have been doing this. It was very fast. Okay? It was a very awkward moment. Now, compare that, if you will, or contrast that to another kind of public correction that could take place. Um, I teach at, that's at the seminary up the road, and, and uh, the way I teach my class is usually very give-and-take kind of atmosphere, so I'm always wanting the students to think out loud with me. I think a, a teaching method is it, if they can think out loud and feel free to do so, if they some, say something wrong, we can correct it and not a big deal. So th- just, just the other day, this happened in one of my classes. One of the students, really good guy, very sharp guy, made the comment that um, when we were talking about what it means to be an image bearer before the Lord, that... Um, 
when we as human beings are image bearers, we're of the same essence as God in our nature. Now, if you're studying theology, you would know that that's actually pretty close to a heretical idea. In fact, it, it pretty much is heresy uh, to say that. It's what many other world religions teach, but it's not true. So I have the option now as the teacher to correct this publicly because it was said in front of the rest of the class. And so I have, I have a lot of different options. Uh, I could say, okay, you are an idiot. Right? Then that would really engender my class to me. They would love me from then on, right? No, of course not. I, I could tell this person, yeah, you need to stand up and you need to go stand in the corner and we're going to put a dunce cap on your head because that was ridiculous. I mean, come on. But no, that's not the case. What we did in the class is we just simply said, well, I really like the general flow of your thinking, but one particular phrase was problematic. Let's, let's talk about that. And then as a class, we work through the issue of what it means to be of the same nature with God or, in our case, not the same nature or in essence of God. So a public correction that was gentle and mild as opposed to throwing clothes over a balcony. Okay. Well, in, in our text of Scripture where we're going to look at today, there was a strong public correction that needed to take place. Sometimes strong public corrections take place, and they're done very poorly, like the first one I did. Sometimes they take place, but they're gentle and soft. But there are times when it's really important to have a strong public rebuke take place that isn't necessarily gentle. And when we come to our text of Scripture today, what we're doing is we're actually right in the middle of that kind of, of scenario taking place in Galatians chapter 2. So, so to give you a sense of what this kind of rebuke is like that we'll get into, if you can imagine uh, what oftentimes happens on sports teams, particularly for high school and college, you probably don't want to do this a lot with younger children, but oftentimes if there's a high school team or college team and the star player's loafing, or he's done a really uh, poor play that he should have known better, oftentimes you'll see a coach pull that person aside and in front of the rest of the team rebuke them strongly. Now the reason that will happen is usually twofold. One is because you want to correct the individual, but you also want to be careful to not let what that individual is doing undermine everything else that you've been trying to do across the board with the whole team. So typically, if it's a good coach or a good father who's disciplining his family this way, the mentality behind the strong rebuke is not to punish, but to correct with great hopes for what will happen in the future. And as we come to the text of Scripture today, that's kind of what we found. Now, we have a precedence in our church that one of the great theologians that we look to from North Carolina, our pastor introduced us to this gentleman uh, not too long ago, is this guy. Barney Fife. And Barney Fife would say, when you come to certain kind of situations, you need to nip it, nip it, nip it in the bud. In fact, we even had a, uh, there's a video, I, 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 probably if you get a chance to look at it later today, you can Google in uh, Barney Fife nip it and you'll find someone's actually taken some Barney Fife scenes and put it to a rap song and the whole thing's about nip it. It's really hilarious, but we couldn't put it up here for legal reasons on that. So uh, it's got a beat, nip it, nip it in the bud. And so... So you can think about that today as we're working through this passage of Scripture, and hopefully that just didn't derail your whole time in the Word this morning uh, by talking about that. Let me, uh, let me advance to a, a few ideas before we actually read the text we're in. As we look at today, we're going to be in chapter uh, 2, verse 15 through 21, but there's some background information that I think it would be really wise for us to remember as we move through our discussion today. So let me give you a little bit of the context of the book of Galatians again, and then the particular context of the chapter that we're in. First of all, in regard to the context of the book of Galatians, Paul is writing to a people called the Galatians, 
And they are people who came to faith earlier through his public ministry with them. Now, Paul's letter that he's writing to them is one of concern. It's one of consternation, if you will, of, of, of actually, at points, a strong rebuke and correction. What Paul is concerned about with these folks is that he's concerned that they may be in the midst of a theological drift. And the way that that might take place is that he's recognizing, and the words come to him, that there's a, a problem of legalism, or what we might call moralism, that's beginning to grow up in the church of Galatia. And Paul understands that if this behavior continues, what it's actually potentially doing is undermining the entire central message of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. So Paul recognizes that not only does he need to change and correct the behavior, but very, very importantly, what's underlying the behavior is, is a wrong belief about God. Okay, so his, his, his method or his idea is pastoral in nature, fatherly in nature, but he's going to be very strong in that. So when you come to the context of chapter 2 then, what's been happening is that Paul has been telling his own story. Here's a man that, that as he was raised up in the, in the Jewish faith, he was a man that, that grew up under the best teachers, was described as, as a Jew among all Jews, held to all the ritual patterns, followed all the laws and all the moralism that was related to his particular um, religion as he was growing up, and yet he converted because the Lord rescued him out of his own legalism, out of his own religiosity. And in doing so, what happened with Paul was there was an amazing shift that began to take place where he began to understand what it means to have liberty before the living God of the universe through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as he's telling his own story, he's recognizing that what's happening in Galatia is something that's been dangerous to the church in many other cities as well. And he, and he begins to talk about a particular experience that he had with the Apostle Peter in the town of Antioch. And if you look in your Bibles in chapter 2 of Galatians, you'll see this at verse 11. He says, When Cephas, or Peter, came to the town of Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, why would, he, why would Paul feel like he needs to get in the face of Peter and oppose him, what was it that would make Peter condemned? Well, here's what was beginning to happen in these different places. There was a group of folks called Judaizers, and Jeff's already explained this to some degree earlier in our, our earlier weeks, but Judaizers were basically people who were saying, okay, you, you, we're Christians, but in order to be a real Christian, you have to live according to all the Jewish rituals. And one of them in particular that was really being emphasized was the ritual, or if you will, the practice of circumcision. I'll leave it to you parents to explain what that means to the kids uh, at a later time. But basically, with this particular ritual, they were saying that if you weren't circumcised, adult males, you couldn't really be a Christian. Now, in addition to that, what oftentimes also went along with that was rituals in relation to the kinds of foods you could eat or the kind of people you could eat foods with. So when you pick up at verse 11 in chapter 2 of, of Galatians, you see that what, was being, what is taking place here is Peter had been among these Gentile Christians, these Christians who, who were not from the Jewish lineage, and they were used to eating certain foods and having certain freedoms, and, and Peter had learned in Acts chapter 10 that he was also allowed to eat those same foods. Unfortunately, what began to take place, however, is that when some of these Judaizers were coming from Jerusalem to, to be among the folks at Antioch, Peter got afraid. 
And as a result of that, he stopped hanging out as much with the, Galatian, or with, the, uh, with the Gentile believers. He backed off of those relationships. He stopped eating those foods. And this concerned Paul greatly. Why? Well, imagine if you were one of those, one of those Gentile believers, and this, this man had come, and he brought to you the message of freedom in the gospel. And then all of a sudden, he starts to reverse that and not hang out with you at all because some folks are coming from Jerusalem. What that might imply to you is, first of all, a personal affront to you in this new friendship. You might just be, well, what is he, too good for us now? And indeed, the passage says that Peter held himself aloof. But in addition to that, the great danger was that what he perhaps was teaching these Gentiles was that the whole message he had originally told them was no longer true. And so Paul, seeing this, knew that something needed to be done. And if you'll remember what Jeff talked about the last couple weeks, let me put the slide up for us here. This phrase becomes the riveting phrase of all that we're going to talk about this morning once again and what Paul is having to do with Peter. He wants Peter to remember, Peter, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Peter, and all of you Gentiles who are watching, Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus plus nothing is everything. So this passage is basically a reminder for us, if you will. This passage is good for us to remember that Jesus Christ alone is the means by which a person could have right relationship with God. It is not through moralism. It's not through religious practice. It's not through us working ourselves up by some mentality that God helps those who helps themselves. That is what Paul is here to destroy. That idea is not something that's in the text of Scripture. Now, for me, and you all probably have different versions of this where you've seen this in your own life. For me, um, I grew up Roman Catholic, and so from my perspective growing up, Roman Catholics have a whole lot of rituals. In my perspective in that context, then, it really, my experience of, of church was largely about doing rituals. It wasn't until I was, I was in my teens that I actually heard a clear presentation of what it means to actually have faith in God. For me, religion was just something you did on Sunday. You went to a Mass, and that was all that mattered. You just, that's how you would be saved. But, you know, Southern Baptists have our own versions of this as well. Now, um, there's a lot of different ones, but let me illustrate this. One of my first experiences in visiting a Southern Baptist church was back about 20, 23 years ago. I visited a small town in Virginia, and I went to church there. And uh, when I got out of my car, I was dressed in very North Wakeian kind of clothes. Okay, I looked like one of the joiners. <laughs> who are, 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 so, or Jeremy. Jeremy's in shorts. And I show up to church with a pullover and shorts, and for, it, looks, it looks generally nice. So I go to the church, and one of the first things happens is a gentleman comes out to greet me. And one of the very first things he says to me is, where's your coat and tie? Now, let me just illustrate what I'm trying to get at here. Let me be crystal clear about what I'm trying to say. I do think that wearing a coat and tie can indeed be a very, very important thing to do when attending church. I do think there are times to do that. In fact, honestly, sometimes I wonder if informalism doesn't take advantage a little bit of our relationship before the king of the universe. Okay, so I, I think I understand what this gentleman was trying to get after on that. I, I do think it may, in fact, even be good for sometimes, for some of us, just to put on a coat and tie, just to show the king that we want to honor him as he is. Okay? So, but for, for, here's the crucial difference. The difference would be if you're standing before God, 
was somehow equated by anybody that the way you wear clothes can earn you favor before God, there's problems there. And so there's a significant element of what's taking place in the passage of Scripture today that it's really good for us to think through on this. So let, me, let me get you to think through the nature of the conflict, if you will, between Peter and Paul. Peter's hypocrisy in this case was that with the Gentiles, he ate all the foods that they were eating and the previous Jewish customs he was willing to let go. Unfortunately, however, if you look down in your passage of Scripture that we're going we're gonna to read in full in just a second here, if you look at um, verse 12, actually, let me go ahead and read 11, 12, and 13 so you can see it in your text of Scripture. When Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof. Notice this next phrase, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in this hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now, Jeff did a beautiful job teaching us about hypocrisy last week, so I won't re-teach re, uh, that whole section there. But the phrase I want you to see is, notice Peter's motivation. He was afraid. Now, this should remind you of something that took place with Peter years and years prior, about 20 years prior. And this is from uh, Mark chapter 12 or excuse me, Mark chapter 14, if you will. Take a look at this passage of Scripture. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the porch, and the rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he denied it, and after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are also a Galilean too. But he began to curse and to swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. And immediately a, a, crow, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Twenty years earlier, why do you think Peter denied the Lord on the night that he was betrayed? I think he was afraid. After Jesus rises from the dead, he rebukes Peter, restores him, and he tells Peter, Peter, you're the one who I want to lead the church. And yet here we are 20 years later in the book of Galatians, and we read in verse 12 of chapter 2 that because he feared, he was willing to deny the central tenets of the faith. I find that striking for a lot of different reasons. One, I found it actually kind of curiously encouraging. The very man who was leading the church that, that the Lord took and said, hey, Peter, feed my sheep, that he still struggles to be the kind of man that God wants him to be. That You know, the Christian life is one in which we will always be on progression towards the day we'll see Christ face to face, and none of us will be perfect before we get there. And so we can take great hope in this. But it, it's also a bit discouraging that this fear would be so debilitating that he would be willing to move away from the central tenets of the faith. And because of that, Paul had to get in his face and confront him about it. It's interesting, if you think about Peter writing a resume for leading the church, 
I, I think about that sometimes. As I was reading this passage last night and, and meditating on this, I was thinking, you know, it's fascinating to me that of all the people in the Bible, Peter has the one unique resume that he was publicly rebuked by Jesus and publicly rebuked by Paul. Isn't that fascinating that he has that, that, that standout part of his resume? Well, let's move into the text in particular itself so that we can, we can kind of dig in a little bit together. So again, grab your Bibles. Let's put our nose right in the scriptures there. Uh, I didn't put these on the screen for the purpose of you having your noses and your Bibles this morning in there. So let's follow along with me as I pick up at verse 14. And our main text this morning is 15 through 21. So notice that we're in the middle of a discussion when Paul, in verse 14, uh, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, and then if you'll note, verse 15, or whatever follows to the end of the chapter is actually his, what he said to Paul, or to, excuse me, what Paul said to Peter. If you, Peter, being a Jew, live like Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you, Peter, compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature, in essence he's saying, me and you, Peter, were Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeing to be, seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then the minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let me make a few quick um, thoughts before you before we really kind of take this a piece, piece by piece. First of all, let me note, uh, highlight something in regard to all of you who are going to be in church leadership in the future. And, and from my perspective, that means every male that's in the room here should be training themselves to be an elder in the church. One of the things that comes out of this particular passage of scripture is to note how these two men, Peter and Paul, who were both considered apostles of the faith, were willing to submit to one another. Back in Galatians chapter 2, and in verse 2, what you see is, is Paul, when he got the gospel message, he actually went to Jerusalem to submit the message that he had to three men. Their names were James, John, and interestingly enough, Peter. And he brought his message and he said, if I'm teaching anything wrong, I want you all to correct me. And then by verse 14, you see the exact opposite takes place, where now Paul is having to hold Peter accountable to something that Peter did wrong. So Peter submits to the leadership of Paul. What a fascinating interplay in the text of Scripture that these folks, they're willing to say, you know what, my reputation doesn't matter. I might be a person who's supposedly in charge, but what matters is that I submit to a message that's bigger than me. It's one of the beauties, I think, of serving at a church in which there's a multiple elder team. If I were to say anything this morning that was heretical or something that was not true of the gospel message, I would expect my pastors and elders to get up and rebuke me publicly. That would be a wise thing to do. It also has an, a lesson for us in relation to discipleship. This is why discipleship has to be concerned with doctrine. That you folks who are sitting in the church today, you have to be concerned to understand the truth of the message that you can handle it accurately and that we could grow together in discipleship. Okay, 
Now to our, our particular text. Look at verse 15 very specifically with me. Paul's in the middle of this conversation. He says, okay, we are Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. In essence, as he engages the discussion with, with Paul, uh, Peter, Paul is saying, you and I, we are both born of the, of the heritage, if you will, of the lineage of Judaism. Okay, so we're born that way. You and I understand that there's certain things the way Jews think. We ought to try to think about following the laws, following the Pentateuch or the Jewish Bible, what we call the Old Testament. And as we follow those things, we've kind of been taught that that's how we have right standing with God. Okay, so you and I, we are by nature Jews. We're not born Gentiles who, who the Jews call sinners. But look at verse 16. starts with the word nevertheless. And this is crucial to his whole argument. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no man is justified. Now, you have to forgive me for this, but I'm a teacher more than a preacher, and so I always have to kind of do a little bit of teaching involved with this. If you look at the text, one of the basic ways to do Bible study just a very, very good basic Bible study skill, is to look for repeated phrases. And once you find a repeated phrase, you usually are going to hone in on the central idea of a text of Scripture. So as you look through this passage of Scripture, and indeed the whole one that we're reading here, what begins to stick out? Hopefully, yeah, some of you said it. Hopefully you'll begin to see the word justification is the word that is repeated several times. In fact, in the passage we're reading, justification shows up five different times in the passage, four of them happen in verb forms, being justified. And then in verse 21, some of your translations say the word righteousness. That's actually the same root word for justification. So the word shows up five times in the passage. The other things that show up repetitively through the passage of Scripture are the words faith or belief and the words law or works of the law. And so what begins to rise to the surface as you do the Bible study is justification, and that's somehow related to faith and works of the law. And what our job this morning is is to try to understand how these work together. Now, in this particular passage, what you see here is that Paul is saying to us very specifically, if you believe you can be right with God by doing works of the law, you've missed everything. The fundamental truth, and he's telling this to Peter, Peter, you know this, the fundamental truth is not the works of the law, but what the Old Testament told us all the time. And Abraham being the chief example of it, it's faith that makes us right before God. In our case now, what he's telling them is that it's faith in Jesus Christ that will make us right before the law. Now, a couple people I think you need to hear from, from the history of the church. One more recently, a fellow by the name of John Stott, a famous Bible teacher and theologian, makes this comment about the term justification. He says, nobody has understood Christianity who does not understand this word. Martin Luther, the great reformer, went on to, or said this years and years prior. He said, Justification is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this doctrine well, teach it to others, and, and this is very much like Martin Luther's personality, not only should we know it well, teach it to others, but we should beat it into their heads continually. And here's the reason why he says we need to beat this into our heads. He says, he goes on to say, if the article of justification be once lost, then the whole of Christian doctrine is lost. 
And so this text of Scripture that we're looking at today becomes fundamental to everything within Christianity. Let me highlight it by giving you a few visuals. The word justification, what does it mean? Well, if you define it, there's really two primary ways that you begin to define the word justification. The one on the left, I think, is for you. Yeah, the one on the left, if think about it in terms of a carpentry. In carpentry, if anybody's done carpentry with me, actually, Jeremy has done some with me, and you know I'm not a very good carpenter. If I try to put up a two-by-four on a wall, I will usually have it a little cockeyed. Even if I get my level out and put the bubble there, it'll still be a little bit messed up. And what will happen, I'm doing this, actually, I'm trying to build a barn, and he's actually tried to rescue my attempt at building a barn. What will happen is that once you get a little bit out of square, the whole thing is, is out of square. It's not justified. Okay, so what you need to do is put one piece up very straight so that everything else can align with it. So that would be one way to understand the, uh, the term of justification, a proper alignment. The second one is the primary one that comes from this text, even though the first one will work. The second one is mainly how Paul uses it. It's a legal term. And the legal term of justification, it means declaring something not guilty and giving it all the privileges of being righteous. Okay, declaring something not guilty and giving the privilege of being declared righteous. Well, here's the problem with us human beings. Scripture tells us that no human being is righteous, that no human being is rightly ordered to God. Romans 3.23 says it this way, for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that one three-letter word, all, puts us all in the same category. It means not only everybody in this room, but it means everybody on our planet. There's no one who has escaped the problem of sin. The scripture goes on to tell us then, because of that, that the wages of our sin is death. All human beings, having sinned, have earned the penalty of death. And so while we were created to be rightly justified with God, all of us have gone our own way. And the result of that is eternity without God. That's the problem that each one of us faces. And so in verse 16, if you'll look back at your text of Scripture then, Paul says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is justified, or uh, that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus, it, you have to have your faith in Jesus to be rightly justified. Now, what's odd about this is that somehow in our culture, really on our planet, maybe the chief idea that goes against this is that somehow we are able to help ourselves to get to heaven by being good. By doing works, by doing religion, by being a good neighbor, by being a good boss, by not screaming at my kids. Whatever it is that is in our lives that we begin to think, somehow we think that if I avoid certain sins, I will be more pleasing unto God. But what these scriptures tell us is that's a hopeless endeavor. Indeed, John Stott says it this way, the very idea that a person could help themselves to be right with God is a fearful delusion. And he goes on to say, it's the biggest lie of the biggest liar the world has ever known, the devil himself. Verse 16 is teaching us that our faith in Christ is what makes us the kind of people that can be rightly aligned with God. Well, he goes into a transition then in verse 17 and following. Let me go through these uh, uh, so that you get a sense of what he's doing here. In our language, this can sound kind of confusing. It's actually not that confusing in the text. And then in verse 20, he'll explain what justification is. So in verses 17 through 19, he's basically anticipating the argument of the Judaizers who are going against him. And what they would say are things like, well, okay, if, if it's 
if it's by faith that I have right standing with God and not by the moral or religious activities I do, then doesn't that mean that basically uh, I can do whatever I want whenever I want? Doesn't this undercut morality and ethics? Well, listen to what Paul does. He says, if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found to be sinners, is Christ then the minister of sin? Okay, so that in verse 17, he's basically saying, okay, if... You're telling me my justification comes through Christ. Then all that hard work I do in order to follow the law, all that's telling me is that I'm a sinner? And, Paul, are, are you, is, is what you're saying is that I no longer have to follow the law at all? Well, look at the response that Paul says at the end of 17. He says, no, 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 no. If that's what you think I'm saying, you're missing the whole point. Because in verse 18, he then goes on to say, look, if I rebuild what I have once restored, restored, in other words, if I think, if I begin to teach that by obeying moral behaviors, you can then get to heaven, isn't that exactly opposite what I've been teaching you all along? So if I rebuild what I've already torn down, doesn't that just show I don't get it? I'm, I'm, I'm a transgressor? Instead, what really is the case is that the law... The Bible has taught me that as I try to keep the morals of the Bible, the, the laws of the Bible, I can't. And so through the law, I recognize I actually die to the law. I can't follow it. I'm in no position before the Lord, and so the Lord has to rescue me from that. So he's answering the objections. If you think that righteousness comes from works of the law, you're trying to rebuild a system that doesn't work. And all you've done is you've proved that you're a sinner, just like the scriptures teaches that you are. So this begs a question from us, does it not? It begs the question, if I can't be saved by being a good person, if I can't be saved by following the law, if I can't have right relationship with God by any other world religion, by, by trying to pull myself up by my religious bootstraps, by adopting the idea that God helps those who helps themselves, if none of that saves me, what saves me? Well, let me, uh, let, me, let me transition into this idea by telling you a little bit of a story of something that happened to me this week. Every Thursday afternoon, I, I go and I do what we call recreational Bible study. Some of the men that I disciple, we meet together at the, at the Mellow Mushroom from about noon till 2 o'clock every Thursday just to study the Scriptures and, and ask the Lord what He wants to teach us from the passage of Scripture and engage these things. We're having pizza, and uh, while we're, the, the pizza's ordered, we're sitting there at the table. Our Bibles are open. We've taken over a big table at, in the restaurant and all of a sudden, we hear this crash. And what had happened was a car, a, a pickup truck was driving down 1A, and another car T-boned him as he was coming out of the, the road ne right next to the Mellow Mushroom. Okay, so the guy in the pickup truck that was coming down 1A, he gets hit, his front tire pops, his fender busts open, he, he runs up on the curb, and he's, he stops the car over there. Now, the other blue pickup truck on the road there stops, doesn't do anything. Now, the guys who I'm with, we all jump at the table. Everybody else at the restaurant is kind of wide-eyed, and we're kind of all men of action. So we kind of jump up, and we're, we're into this sort of thing. The three other guys, as best I can remember, they kind of ran off to see if, if the guy was hurt who was in the, in the pickup truck over here. Whereas with me, I was watching the pickup that actually did the hitting. And it was fascinating to watch. The guy driving there sat there, looks down the road, kind of looks around. You can kind of tell what's going on in his mind. I'm going to be busted for this. Something, I, what should I do? And he made a decision in a split. He decided to back up 
and run. So he puts his car in reverse, he backs up into the Taco Bell parking lot, and he sits there, and I had, by that point, I had walked in the direction of where he was, because I was going to try to get his license plate. So I walk down to the back of the Mellow Mushroom, and I'm looking right at him, and he's looking right at me, and we have this, this communication going on, and he decides he's taken off anyway, and so he takes off, and I look, and I see this blue pickup truck, extended cab, it has four by four in white written on the side. I have a sense of the nationality of the driver of the car. As the car goes by, I see red letters on a, on a North Carolina license plate that were blank, blank, W, slash, 5024. If you're here today, <laughs> now what happened at that moment was this person took off, and they did, they ran. So the guy called the police, and these folks came over there. But this is what the interesting part for the application for us today. I walked back from that, getting the license tag. I came back over to the table. Everybody knew that we were there by this point doing this study. Our table's full of Bibles. I have an SCBTS T-shirt on, this whole thing. Well, this woman from two tables over, she looks at me, and she says, did you get the tag? And I said, yeah, I did. And she goes, yes, justice. Now, I had no idea who this woman was, but as she said that, something triggered in my heart that I think all of you will immediately understand. We all long for justice. We all know what it is, even if we deny it. Every human being wants it, and it's recognizable when it's been abused. Right? You know, what was interesting, as I placed myself in that context, I know what justice is, but I also know something else about the human heart. I want justice to be done to everybody else, but I don't want justice done to me. If I were in that car, I would have had all the same temptations as the guy in the pickup truck did. What this passage of Scripture is trying to show us is that, you know what? Justice needs to be done to sinners. And we've just read in Romans that every human being is a sinner. It doesn't matter whether you're Hindu, whether you're Buddhist, whether you're Catholic, whether you're Baptist. It doesn't matter whether you're in America, whether you're in China, whether you're in t- with the Taperas at the Citadel. It doesn't matter. All of us are sinners, and we are due justice. But we don't want justice done to us. And so what we try to do is pretend that we can make a defense against God by building up some case of good works when Paul tells us no good works will ever get you to heaven. It doesn't matter where you are on the planet. So it begs the question, how are you saved? Bathe for a moment with me in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My brothers and sisters, this is what Jeff has been teaching us for weeks. This is the central core of the message. What the scripture tells me is I am due a penalty before the living God of the universe. But Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was crucified. And so the way that I am saved is by placing my faith in Jesus Christ. I am then therefore crucified with him. What that means is in essence, if I can, I think I have this on slide, is that while I have earned my own penalty, my own guilty black cloud is over me, Jesus has all righteousness and goodness, if you will. What needs to take place is by, as I place my faith in Christ then, as Romans 5.8 tells me, while I'm yet a sinner, Christ died for me and I place my faith in that. 
a beautiful transaction takes place that looks like this. My guilt is then placed on Christ, and Christ's righteousness is placed on me. And the way that takes place is not by my good works, but by placing my faith in Jesus Christ as the only one who can save me. Then what happens is justice is satisfied. God's wrath is poured out on the cross. And so in that sense, I'm crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ's righteousness that lives in me. This is what Paul was after Peter to say, Peter, when you begin to add moralism, you destroy this message. And if you destroy this message, you destroy the entire Christian faith. So verse 21 then goes on to say this. Um, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if by righteousness one comes, or if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Please, please get this with me. If we think that by our religious behaviors we can earn God's favor, if we think that we can make ourselves cleaner somehow before God so that he loves me more, both of those are contrary to the heart of the gospel. And what Paul is saying in this verse right here is that if, uh, I, I, in essence, I nullify grace if I say it's Christ plus anything. Look, if you could make it to heaven through being a good person, Jesus didn't need to die. If you could make it to heaven by being a Buddhist, Jesus didn't need to die. If you could make it to heaven by somehow putting on nice clothes, Jesus didn't need to die. But if all of us, doesn't matter where you are in history or on the planet, are sinful, then Jesus needed to die to pay my debt. Is that arrogant? No, it's grace. It's stunning grace that none of us deserved. And so you may hear these two phrases every once in a while around this church, and let me just clarify what they mean. Sometimes you'll hear people say, you must believe, quote-unquote, the gospel to be saved. What we mean when we say the words the gospel, what we mean by that is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, and by placing my faith in him alone for salvation, that's how a person can be saved from the penalty that they're due for their sins. The second phrase you sometimes hear around here is you must preach the gospel to yourself for every day. And that one, for the majority of you in the room, what that means is that you must remember, I must remember, that I never have been, I am currently not, and I never will be worthy of the love of God. I never have been, am not, and never will be. But by the grace of God, all my past sins have been forgiven. I am currently totally forgiven by God, and all my future sins have already been paid for by the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's the message I need to preach to myself when I blow it and think I have to clean myself up to be right with God. If I do that, I nullify grace, and Jesus didn't need to die. See, at the end of the day, this statement is still true. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let me pray for us as the band comes up to the front. Our Father, as we have had the